Good afternoon. Am I on? Y'all hear me? Awesome. Uh, like John said, it is a pleasure to be with y'all this afternoon. Um, if I've not met you, my name is Robert Knuth, and uh, yeah, I live in Ann Arbor. I'm really glad I'm preaching this Sunday and not uh, next month because it might be more embarrassing for me to show my face in Ohio. Um, football joke, but uh, yeah, no, I, it, I've been here a couple times. I have a wife. My name, or her name is Catherine. We have two small children, uh, Peter, who's three, and Abigail, who's going to be two next month. Um, that's a little bit about me, but you, you didn't come to hear from me. You came to hear from the living God. And um, so with that said, we're going to be in Psalm 72. Uh, this afternoon, I'm going to be reading from verses 1 through 14. It's just the word of the Lord. Of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the moon grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you. Like John prayed, like Tom prayed, that you are indeed our set-apart God. You are holy, omnipotent, worthy to be praised. And who are we? Who are we but dust? Thank you, though, that you have called this dust yours, that you've breathed life into us. We are made in your image, and, and we are dignified in your sight by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so let us now come forth with confidence, knowing that we are sons and daughters of the King, that we have your ear at all times of the day. That you, you, you view us with such delight as our hymn just wrote. Those he saves are his delight. Would we believe that? Would we believe that even now as we hear from you? So speak through me, just another poor sinner. You speak through me uh, so that these people might be blessed by your word. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So I have a confession to make. Um, one of the greatest joys to, to be in quarantine and something I, I really miss about COVID, kind of the COVID season hopefully being on its way out, I don't want to speak too, too soon, um, is that my wife and I actually took more time to watch movies, and that might sound like 
a normal thing. Uh, but uh, the nature of my job is, is I'm often gone in the evening uh, just because that's college students. They, you know, are up a little later and stay up a little later. And so I'm gone during the, the evening and, and uh, because, you know, more people were quarantined and social distancing, my nights were free. So, um, you know, with two kids under three, uh, as soon as we put the kids down, uh, it completely changed the ball game. My wife and I, we'd come down and we'd watch movies, movies that we hadn't seen in years. And I think one of my favorite during this time was the 2017 award-winning movie, The Darkest Hour. It's my mother-in-law's favorite movie. Uh, and if you know it, it's really great. If you don't, uh, it's a movie based on the real-life unfolding of events in Britain during May of 1940. Adolf Hitler's Germany had just reached the Belgian border with one million troops fully intent on conquering the rest of Europe. English troops were retreating to the sea at Dunkirk, where they would eventually be surrounded with no hope at the hands of the Germans. And when Winston Churchill takes over power as the new prime minister, he essentially has two choices. Do you surrender to the German tyrannical dictator and hope for the best, or do you continue fighting a losing battle, and do you put the entire island of Britain in danger of being conquered. This is why Winston Churchill is so famous. He's kind of gone down history for how he handled this decision. All right, and it appears like a lose-lose for Churchill until he comes up with a way to deliver his needy troops from the grip and oppression of the enemy. There's actually another movie about that. It's called Dunkirk. It's how how ordinary civilians came in with their boats and just rescued people by by you know, half dozens, dozens. You have to watch that that one too. That that's a good one, right? But, but like, I, I think we enjoy movies like Darkest Hour because these movies ultimately tell a greater story. They tell a story of when our lives are stacked against all odds, with death as a near certainty, and how there was another leader in power who swooped in to deliver us, and and not how we might expect him to deliver us. And that is the story I want to tell this morning. I want to tell the story of a king unlike any other the world has ever seen. A king whose heart is forever on the poor, oppressed, and needy. A king who reigns in peace and shall never end. A king who overflows with mercy and whose judgments are entirely just and right. Psalm 24 verse 8 asks the question, Who is this king of glory? Who is he? And this might sound like a Sunday school answer, but I think the question for you this morning is, what is he like? In other words, it's not enough just to know the name of the king. It's not enough just to throw down, you know, like a, a sign of your knowledge or, or, to, or to maybe put a yard sign in your yard in support of his policies. What I want to invite us into is an in-depth look at, at the character of this king. Let's talk about what makes his heart tick. Let's talk about what it's like to live under his reign. Let's talk about his abundant mercy to people like you, to people like me. And so those are my three points this morning. The heart of the king, the reign of the king, and the mercy of the king. I'll repeat those one more time. The heart of the king, the reign of the king, and the mercy of the king. And so the very first detail about the psalm I want you to know is essential. I think oftentimes when we read scripture, we can um, see, uh, the, not, not the subtitle, 
but who it's by and just kind of glance over it. Uh, The psalm begins by saying, of Solomon. And so whether it's written by Solomon or about Solomon, it doesn't really matter. The Hebrew um, preposition there is a little, little bit ambiguous. It doesn't really matter if it's by Solomon or about Solomon, because the protagonist throughout the psalm is clearly Solomon. And verse 1 makes this, this plain by the statement, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the, royal, to, to the son of the king. I realize that the, the ESV has that last part translated royal son. And hopefully you see that it's communicating the same idea. Solomon, as King David's son, has now ascended to the throne of Israel. He now has power over all of God's people. Verses 2 through 4 then go into detail about how Solomon ought to reign as king. Verse 2 writes that he is to judge with righteousness and justice. Verse 3 adds that under his rule, God's people are to be prosperous, but then again righteous. And verse 4 concludes by highlighting that Solomon's heart should always be turned toward the poor and the needy. But even more than that, his job is to crush the oppressors, to crush those who oppress the poor and needy, that this king is their defender. And so if you're tracking with me so far, this is a king who should have a heart for righteousness, justice, and prosperity, while also defending those who are marginalized and oppressed. (laughs) In other words, uh, this king might as well be a unicorn, and, and for as wise as Solomon was in his days, it's very quickly apparent that he can't fully be the king described in Psalm 72. Listen to what 1 Kings 11, 7 through 10 detail. This is, this is why Solomon cannot be the king of Psalm 72. This is what it says. Then Solomon built a high place for Kamosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Solomon's unceasing lust after foreign women led his heart into the worship of other gods. Idols that were not the the true and living God. Uh, This is a big deal for many reasons. But here's one of them. Here's just one of them. The worship of Molech, the god of the Ammonites, always involved child sacrifice. That's right. Like In order to worship Molech, Solomon had to participate in something very casual, like child sacrifice. And so you might be asking, right, like, this, this presents a tension. Why would a man as wise and godly as Solomon do such a horrific thing? It, I mean, isn't that clearly, like, wrong? <laughs> um, isn't this more like a black and white thing? Why, w- why would Solomon do this? And, and here's the thing. Solomon didn't just marry those foreign women because he was simply bored. They were strategic and political maneuvers. Maneuvers that he made to keep peace with with foreign nations so that Israel could enjoy a golden age of economic prosperity and wealth. 
And so in other words, before these foreign women eventually turned his heart away from the Lord, Solomon had turned his heart toward that money. And so, so even though under Solomon, part of what the psalm is saying is true, in that the mountains did bear prosperity for the people, that's in verse 3, the prosperity is actually at the cost of the poor and the needy. Instead of defending the oppressed, as verse 4 goes on to say, Solomon himself ends up being the oppressor. Instead of giving deliverance to the children of the needy, he takes advantage of their lack of power and sacrifices them to Moloch as a power grab. Is it no different today? We live in a present cultural moment where everywhere you look, people are yearning for justice. Both sides of the aisle, everywhere. Justice for the most oppressed and marginalized members of our society. Justice that seeks to crush the oppressor. Justice that works to defend the cause of the poor of the people. So it begs the question, begs the question, who is this king of glory? Who, instead of using prosperity and privilege for his own gain, rules in equity without any partiality toward the color or culture of a person's skin? Who is this king of glory who, instead of sacrificing innocent children up to the God of comfort and control, and power defends the life of the unborn? Who is this king of glory who has a heart that breaks? Who has a heart that breaks? Doesn't get angry, but breaks at all the injustices of the world. Well, for one thing, I think, I think this is pretty certain. It's not Solomon. It's not Biden. It's not Trump. And it isn't you. It's not me. The reign of Solomon, for all its relative good, was, was flat out an abuse of power. And here's the thing. Here's the thing, and I don't, I don't know if this is a hot take. You guys were like, man, this guest, guest preacher is really making these hot takes. Is that, I mean, that's all racism is. That's all abortion is. That's all any injustice is. It's all an abuse of power that perpetually oppresses instead of blesses. Any abuse of power leads to a, a, a system that is perpetually broken and without hope of restitution. Unfortunately, the king of, of Psalm 72 is not prone to uh, what some might say is systemic injustice. His reign blesses those in his kingdom and brings peace. And so now, now let's turn to our second point, which is the reign of the king. Verse 5, pivots pronouns. Uh, did you notice that? Pivots pronouns. Instead of talking about the king and his responsibilities toward the people, the psalmist now uses the plural pronoun lay to refer to the king's people. The people the king reigns over. They are called to fear him while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. In other words, they are to feel him, fear him for all eternity. It's just another way of saying that they are to fear him for all eternity. And again, another extremely difficult thing to do if this king is only referring to Solomon. And so this verse raises two questions for me when I read the text. The first question that I want to ask of the text, text is, what does this mean to fear the king? 
And the second question I want to ask is, uh, why should they fear the king? Especially if the king is, is as awesome as verses 1 through 4 outline. And so to hopefully illustrate this idea for you a little bit more, I want to tell you about the first time I took my wife on a date. Uh, she lived up in Manhattan working for, for RUF in New York City. I lived in Athens, Georgia, working for RUF at the University of Georgia as an intern. Uh, and for context, she's, she's almost three years older than me. Uh, and still to this day, obviously a lot more mature than I am. Um, that's often how it works. And when I fi- finally got her to go on a date with me, um, I put hours of study to like, determine what restaurant would be good to take her to. What wine I was going to order to try to figure out with the meal. Why I was going to order that wine. What we were going to do after the, the meal. I mean, I, I even came up with like a, a list of conversation topics to talk about if somehow conversation stalled. Long story short, like I knew how much this woman was out of my league. Everybody else did too, but I knew, and now I finally had this opportunity to draw close to her. You could say, you could say I feared looking dumb or doing something that might mess up my, my chances with her. And so what's going on in this silly example? Tim Keller would say that I'm not afraid of being hurt or punished by her. Rather, my joyful admiration of her has a fearful component to it. I am in awe of Catherine. So therefore, I'm, I'm hypervigilant to, to say and do the right thing around her. Verse 5 is saying the same thing. If you live under the reign of a king who is everything described in verses 1 through 4, then your heart can't help but to tremble in his presence. Because you are fully aware of everything he has done on your behalf. If that isn't reason enough to fear the king of Psalm 72, then verse 6 adds another. He is like rain that falls on the mown grass. Like showers that water the earth. Puritan Ralph Robinson writes about the effect rain has on mown grass. He says, quote, The rain has a cooling virtue. When the air is heated through the scorching beams of the sun, the rain does refresh and cool it. We find great cooling after one night's rain, even in the heat of summer. End quote. Continuing, he actually makes the application that Quote, the best of God's children find in themselves such inordinate heats. Sometimes they burn with worldliness. Sometimes they are hot with envyings. Sometimes they rage with passion and distempered anger. There is no way to extinguish such burnings but by the cool drops of Jesus Christ. End quote. Finally, the obvious is stated. This king of Psalm 72, this king of glory can be none other than the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ is quite literally heavenly rain that waters the torched souls of his people. Because here's your reality. Here's my reality, at least. (laughs) I don't want to speak for you. Is that you live in a dog-eat-dog world. In order to get to the top, you have to make sure someone else is at the bottom. This is clear as daylight if you do campus ministry. I got an A in the test. Someone else got the F. Great. Work or be outworked, eat or be eaten, 
kill or be killed. Everybody in this room knows the feeling of what it's like to be used. Used for your money, used for your connections, used for your good looks, used for your ability to listen, used for quite literally anything. People suck you dry. And what's, what, what's that like for you? Are you bitter? Are you angry? Are you cynical? Despairing? I'd say the scorching beams of the world's brokenness has made the sin in your heart rage with fire. And if you don't live under King Jesus, who every second of every day rains down the grace of the gospel upon his people, then this is what's going to happen. Eventually that heat is going to fry you. You're going to become a nihilist without any hope of anything in your life ever changing. Your existence will become a series of going through just the motions for the sake of going through the motions. Just whatever it takes to get by. I, th I think it's so sad when I, when I look at my students on campus. Because I, I think this is just the general culture of the world that we live in. I'm sure it's the same here in Toledo. Where you're just kind of a nihilist. There isn't much hope for your, you, know, you changing, the world changing, people changing. And so you just survive. It's kind of a lackluster, lifeless existence. But what I'm trying to say, and what the text is trying to say to us this afternoon, is that this doesn't have to be the case. Right here in this very moment, you have the opportunity to turn to the King of Heaven and ask that he might water your soul. And even if you're a Christian this afternoon, even if you're like, yeah, I've done that, Pastor. Verse 6 is an invitation for you. It's an invitation for you as well to let God water your soul through the refreshing, cool relief of the gospel. This isn't just an invitation for those who might not know King Jesus. Right? Because in fact, like, this is what the preached word is every single week. Every single week is God showering his word upon you so that the flames of your heart might be extinguished. But not only that, the flames of your heart might be extinguished, but then altogether changed by his grace. I don't even think showers is the best word to exactly um, capture what God does to water your soul. Throughout the entire Bible, uh, this word only appears here in this text this morning. It's a special word. It's a word that can be translated as to water by dispersion or, or to water by drops. So instead of like a scattered shower that you might be familiar with during the summertime, the picture is instead of a rain that steadily pours over like a wide and expansive region. Put another way, the preached word of God is for all peoples at all times, no matter what they believe and no matter who they are. It is always an antidote for whatever you're feeling on any given day. That's why a lot of my students will say, hey, Robert, I'm not going to um, come to church this morning because, you know, my grandma died last week. I'm, I'm feeling really sad. Um, 
Or, you know, I'm not going to come to church. This, this happened this morning. I'm not going to come to church this morning because uh, I went to the game last night. It ended really late, and then I went out with my friends after. And so um, I just can't make it. Right? Like, that's the opposite of what Psalm 72 is saying. Psalm 72 is saying is that, like, this is the antidote. Whether you're in jubilation and ecstatic or you are in the pits. I think sometimes the church puts off a posture that, you know what, there's no space to be sad here. <laughs> Better get your stuff together before you come into this space. But, but, but why, why am I saying this? Why does the Bible have such a high view for the Bible? It's because the Word of God articulates, puts forward, believes this idea that the Word of God is actually powerful. It's actually that powerful. It's what King Jesus uses to distill his authority to reveal his heart as he reigns over us. I'm taking my students through a book called uh, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland this semester, and I think it's done wonders for my denomination, uh, the PCA. <laughs> um, but but the, the premise of the book is that uh, Jesus talks about his heart over the course of the four Gospels in one chapter. 89 chapters to the four Gospels, and he talks about his heart in one chapter. That chapter is in Matthew 11 when he says, Come to me, all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy. Jesus reveals his heart for his people in Matthew 11. And the way he, he reveals his heart is through the Bible. It's through the authoritative word of God. And so perhaps the most important thing you need to know about King Jesus' reign is that his reign is a reign of mercy. And this leads me to my last point, which is the mercy of the king. Verses 7 through 11 catalog just how expansive King Jesus' reign is. Verse 8 says, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 11 adds, May all the kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Clearly, this isn't just some, some minor detail to ignore. I, I mean, I think I have a tendency sometimes when I read the Old Testament, especially where I'm like, I don't know these places. These are unfamiliar terms. No detail is so small to overlook. Because the author wants to drive home over and over again that the kingdom of King Jesus is over all the earth. And there are none who will not one day not bow the knee and confess with their tongues that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I think the best part to this news as a Christian for you right now, this afternoon, is the reason why, is the reason why all will one day bow before King Jesus. It's not just simply like that will happen, which it will, and that's important to know, and that's good. But I think you want to know, well, why will that happen? Listen to what verses 12 through 14 don't say. They don't say that all the world will bow before him because he has rightful authority, even though he does. They don't say that all the world will bow before the king because he's worthy, even though he is. They don't even say that the world will bow before the king because he's got a ton to offer even though he does. 
What do verses 12 through 14 say? It says, For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious, precious is their blood in his sight. All the world will bow before King Jesus because he is a God who delivers. He is a God who has pity on those who are weak and needy. He is a God who redeems broken and messy lives. He is a God who finds his people precious. Christian believer, do you know that you are precious to King Jesus? Do you believe that? Do you know that he went to the cross for you? For you. Not the person next to you. Not your parents. Not your friends. He went to the cross for you. That means your heart no longer has to sinfully burn under the heat of the world's broken systems and power structures. This is because he is the king who never abused power. He is the king who crushed the oppressive power of sin, death, and the devil. He is the king who rules in righteousness and delivered his needy people from their wayward hearts. Christian believer, he is your king. But here's what's even better. He isn't now just your king, but you've been given your king's heart. It's one thing to, to worship Jesus and to call him king and to rejoice that he is our king and, and not, you know, the current president or the former president or whoever the president will be one day. It's one thing to rejoice in that truth alone. It's another thing to believe that King Jesus gives you his heart. That means that instead of your heart burning hot with sinful bitterness, anxiety, envy, or lust, you now have a heart to have pity on the weak and needy. You have a heart that wants justice for those who are oppressed. And don't miss this, though. The only way this is true, the only way this can ever be true, is if you first see yourself as weak, if you first see yourself as needy, if you first see yourself as, as, as oppressed, Jesus can't be your king unless you let him be the king of Psalm 72. The king who, who defends the case of the poor of the people. The king who gives deliverance to the children of the needy. The king who crushes the oppressor. If you aren't poor, needy, and oppressed in some way, shape, or form, then it's going to be really hard to bend the knee to King Jesus. Let me nuance this a little bit really quickly. Um, you don't have to be materially poor to be poor in spirit. In fact, more often than not, more money uh, actually leads to just more ways that your spirit is actually poor. I think it's why the, the, the West has kind of embraced secularism over the gospel. And you look to poorer parts of the world like Africa, where the gospel is on fire. And so if you are someone who's hearing this and, and you can begin to list all the ways that your, your spirit is, is poor, needy, and oppressed, 
right? You're someone who knows firsthand the mercy of the king. And Jesus says to you, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you not only get a king and all of his affectionate heart toward you, but he has lavished upon you this morning all the riches, all the riches of his never-ending glorious kingdom. Because to present the gospel as a king with no kingdom isn't the gospel at all. The king has a kingdom, and he's invited you into it. And you get to live no longer as an orphan, but as a son, as a daughter of this king. Who is this king of glory? The first half of Psalm 24, verse 8, asks this question. Who is this king of glory? The second half answers, The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. We worship a God in heaven who fights for us because we are ultimately precious in his sight. Let's pray.